Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As the weather turns cooler and fall descends upon us, there are many New Years that we are going to be observing. For those with children, they go back to school. To those who are students, they go back to school. For those who have teachers, they go back to school. And certainly for those who are retired or working, as the days turn cooler, our life changes a bit from the summer scheduling. In the Jewish tradition, fall marks the beginning of the important holy day cycle. And so this morning, I want to speak with you, um, as I will be with other subsequent shows, about this Holy Day cycle. Some of you will remember from previous shows that there are two New Years in the Jewish-slash-Hebrew calendar. There is a holiday in the fall called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, which takes place on the first day of Tishrei. And there is a holiday known as Passover, which takes place on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan and is called in the Torah, Nisan that is, is called the first month of the year. So why are there two beginnings of the year? How can Nisan be the first of all months, and yet Rosh Hashanah, the new year, occur in the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, Tishrei? The presence of two new years is not accidental. Rather, it grows out of a notion underlying the Jewish calendar, the notion of two kinds of time, historical time and cyclical time. Historical time is a constant linear movement in an upward direction and is centered upon progress and development. It is a time created by humans and set arbitrarily. It is found in clocks with their minute and second hands and in calendars discarded at the end of last year. The unchanging sun is its symbol. Cyclical time is circular and consists of recurring patterns. It is established by nature and is found in the four seasons. Its symbol is the moon with its various phases. Both kinds of time are found in the Jewish calendar with its two new years. At Rosh Hashanah, we commemorate the new year of creation when our successes and failures are tallied in the account books of heaven. As we mark another year's passage, an evaluation of our progress is made by ourselves and by God. As a people linked with God, our ups and downs in history are not viewed as accidental. Our fate is tied into the morale, mortality of our deeds, thus how we act helps create history. At Nisan, we commemorate Passover and note the coming of spring. Thus, Nisan marks the beginning of the timeless natural cycle, spring, summer, winter, fall. It also marks the beginning of the pilgrimage festival cycle of the Torah, Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. These three festivals of cyclical time beckon us to confront 
the three great themes of liberation, revelation, and exile, redemption each and every year, no matter where we are at the moment in our own life cycles. Both cyclical and historical time are necessary. We need the process of self-evaluation and called forth by historical time to rouse us to change and thus foster creation and progress. Without that, it would be easy to become increasingly sedentary both spiritually and physically as our lives pass by us. With only cyclical time, each season becomes to resemble its predecessor, nothing seems to change. On the other hand, we need cyclical time to give us perspective on the dangers of constantly seeking progress due to an unbridled devotion to the movement of historical time. The Jewish calendar is basically cyclical in its dependence on the moon. However, it is adjusted at regular intervals to keep the festivals in their proper seasons, i.e. Passover is always in the spring. The workings of the calendar with its lunar-solar complexity reflect the mixture of both kinds of time throughout the year. Passover is cyclical, but it is also historical for the Exodus was seen by the tradition as a verifiable event. Similarly, though Rosh Hashanah is historical, it partakes of cyclical time as well as being an annual occurrence. Thus, both kinds of time are often present and together make up the mythic dimension of Judaism. Having reviewed with you a bit about the Jewish calendar, let's turn to the first holiday in the cycle of four holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and then Simchat Torah. Each one of the holidays reflects this notion of cyclical and historical. But this morning, I want to particularly speak to you about Rosh Hashanah and one of the more interesting customs that takes place during the Hebrew month of Elul, the month preceding the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Now, for those of you who have forgotten about what Rosh Hashanah is, as the Torah defines it, let's return to the Torah, the source of all information about the origins of Jewish life. In the book of Leviticus, the first day of the seventh month is described as followed, Leviticus 23. In the seventh month of the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. You shall not work at your occupations, and you shall bring an offering by the fire to the Lord. And in the book of Numbers, number 29, we read, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall observe it as a day when the horn is sounded. You shall present a burnt offering of pleasing odor to the Lord. The number seven seems critical here. Just as the seventh day of the week is holy, so the seventh month of the year has special significance. Since each new moon is a sacred time, it is logical that the seventh new moon, counting from the month of Nisan in the spring, should also acquire a special aura of holiness. 
This special sacredness is commemorated by the sounding of the shofar, the ram's horn. Aside from sacrifice, this is the only specific action mentioned for this holy day in the Torah. Sounding of the shofar is mentioned in both set of verses, though no explanation or reason is offered. Together, the three elements of these verses, the lack of a name for the holiday, a reason for the celebration, and an explanation for sounding the shofar pose a puzzle for us. The question is, why doesn't the Torah describe or emphasize this holy day any further? Many scholars have suggested that the first day of the seventh month was popularly celebrated in ancient Israel as a divine coronation day, the time of God's assumption of kingship and the beginning of a new cycle of the year. There were, as I've already mentioned, two celebrations of a new annual cycle. One in the spring, the month of Aviv, later called Nisan, which in Exodus is called the first month of the year, and another in the fall, as Exodus says, at the turn of the year. The spring celebration was more cultic in nature, being connected to the cycle of sacred festivals and the reign of kings, while that of the fall emphasized the agricultural cycle. The suggestion that a New Year's festival was held in ancient Israel on the first day of the month is based upon an analogy to Babylonian rites. Two separate New Year celebrations were held in Babylonia as well, and upon allusions to such commemoration found in the Psalms. As the scholar Moshe Siegel points out, three principles, the creation of the world on the New Year, the manifestation of God's kingship over the world on the new year and the judgment of the world by God on the new year are already proclaimed together in a series of liturgical psalms that form a distinct group marked by a close affinity of tone, language, and thought. They are the joyous, triumphant psalms contained in Psalm 95 through 100, to which belongs also Psalm 93 and the first part of 94. The constant recurring thoughts in these beautiful psalms are God as creator, king, and judge. Several of the psalms allude to the one commandment specifically connected to this day, the sounding of the shofar. The teruah, one of the sounds of the shofar, is referred to in 95, Psalm 95, and 98 and 100 and should be differentiated from another sound mentioned in the Bible in connection to another holy day, the tekiah, the sound of the trumpet. In these particular psalms, the sofer sound is a joyous proclamation of God's ascendancy to the kingship, and none of the other connotations it received in latter Jewish thought. Another scholar, Baruch Lavin, offers a different suggestion that the day was commemorated by blasting of the shofar in order to announce the festival of Sukkot commenced two years later. Although the Torah has not yet confirmed a title on Rosh Hashanah, and although it had not yet connected the holiday to Yom Kippur, it is nonetheless conceivable that the first of Tishrei was thought of in early times as a time of cosmic judgment, when the destiny of the world was fixed. 
Why then, you might ask, this reticence on the part of the Torah to ascribe all these meanings more explicitly to the first day of the seventh month? Perhaps the pagan connotations of this day were still too strong. After all, the Babylonian celebration centered upon struggles between gods and demons for dominance and was characterized by the use of magic and incantations. Nothing of paganism remains, however, in the Psalms. Mosaic monotheism has already transformed this day completely into a prototype of Rosh Hashanah as we now know it. If these Psalms were indeed intended for recitation on the first of the seventh month, then even as its early date, the Israelites' new celebration festival celebrated the Lord as the sole creator of the world, who on this day ascended the throne and ruled over all creation. The holiday was intended, at least in part, to acknowledge God by the Jewish people as the righteous judge who dispenses justice for all humankind. The first day of the seventh month is also mentioned in the book of Nehemiah as a holy day upon which an important event took place in the year 444 BCE. I'm quoting now from Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month arrived, the Israelites being settled in their towns, the entire people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the scroll of the teaching of Moses with which the Lord had charged Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra brought the teaching before the congregation, men and women, all who could listen with understanding. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from the first light until midday. At this impressive gathering, the people of Israel renewed their covenant with God and accepted the Torah as their basic law. The people wept when they realized how far they had strayed from the teachings that were in Torah. But they were admonished in Nehemiah 8, not to mourn because this day is holy to the Lord your God. The holiness of the first day of the seventh month made plain in this biblical narrative may constitute the reason that it was chosen for this ceremony of reading and accepting the law. At the same time, the Torah does not describe any specific New Year customs observed on that day. Well, that's a brief history about Rosh Hashanah. But I want to then move from this brief history of calendar and time to something specific about Rosh Hashanah. And that is how it is observed in the month of Elul just before Rosh Hashanah begins. Because as with many Jewish holy days, it doesn't just begin a celebration and an observance on that day. There are other aspects to the day. So the whole month, the Hebrew month of Elul, is intended to be a process for preparing ourselves for the coming of the high holy days. The shofar, which I've mentioned earlier this morning, is blown after every morning service. One traditional belief is that Moses told the Israelites to do so throughout Elul, to remind themselves of the sin of the golden calf while he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the second set of tablets. 
perhaps one could consider. We continue to blow the chauffeur today to remind ourselves of the golden calf and how quickly the transition from the heights of revelation to the depths of idolatry can take place. Psalm 27, which begins with the verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation, is recited at the end of the morning and evening service. The first half of this psalm bespeaks assurance. The psalmist, while describing the enemy from a distance, from whom will I be afraid, approaching as evil men come near, preparing should an army besiege me and attacking should war come against me, nevertheless is calm, above all danger, sacrificing and thanking God. The opening structure of this psalm reflects both the growing threat and its total disappearance. The first three verses increase numerically to parallel phrases of five words each, then six, then seven. Remember that number. There follows the central word of the psalm, one. Facing all these threats, the psalmist feels the peace of unity, and throughout this first half, the reader senses no doubt, no real threat. It is then strange that in the second half of the psalm, it depicts a world totally opposite. Some scholars even suggest that there are two separate psalms which have brought together. In the second part of the psalm, we find a desperate search, a constant request, a pleading before the Holy One. Here are some of the phrases, do not hide your face, do not thrust me aside, do not forsake me, do not abandon me. The author is abandoned by parents and surrounded by enemies. And at the apex of this section, the psalmist cries out in agony with a sentence he cannot finish, for he, it depicts the worst of all. Had I not the assurance that I would enjoy the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, his faith is his sole remaining thread connecting him to the land of the living. If he did not have this faith, but in spite of some scholarly interpretations, the two Psalms are indeed one. Hebrew roots carefully repeated in the two halves testify to unity. And does the clear inclusion, the name of God opens and closes the first half of the psalm. The Lord is my light, a hymn to the Lord. And the second, hear, O Lord, look to the Lord. Throughout the second half, the reader hears the echo of the central term. One. The psalmist cries out, demands, asks, pleads that his two words are one. I, the sufferer, he says, depressed to the ultimate limits, am the same who trusts, who is safe, who sits in the presence of the Lord. For us today, this is an ideal preparation. Before we can approach repentance or the joy of the holiday of the new year, we must honestly confront again our own faith and belief. Ever since our ancestor Abraham, we have anticipated the reward of God's protection. But too often we have seen our trials and tribulations as challenges to our faith. The psalmist 
Remember, this is read every morning and evening in the month before Rosh Hashanah. Testifies once again that the love of the Holy One is achieved, not by closing one's eyes, but even as with less significant love through effort, honesty, and open confrontation. The psalm demands oneness, reflecting an integration of most difficult circumstances together with security. The psalmist is model, puzzle, and challenge for us, for he did not hide from life's troubles on one hand, and yet lives within a framework of faith on the other. Reciting this psalm demands that twice a day, the worshiping Jew struggles with our individual and with faith, an expectation that we will arrive at the days of awe ready for repentance, ready to celebrate on the holiday with a full heart before God. In the month of Elul, we are commanded to renew our faith through search, as it is also reflected in the modern Midrash on this psalm. I quote, One I have demanded of God that I shall seek. I seek only that forever I will demand the one, demand the oneness, demand the unity, demand all of this from God. So Psalm 27 becomes an essential part of the worship service twice a day during the month of Elul in preparation for Rosh Hashanah. But there is another aspect, another tradition that is part of uh, Rosh Hashanah, and that is what is known as Slichot. These are special prayers that are recited during the month of Rosh Hashanah. Now, Slichot prayers are um, offered in different ways depending on whether you are Ashkenazic or Sephardic. These prayers, which I'll describe in a moment, in the Sephardic, the Arabic tradition, and the Spanish-Portuguese tradition are added to the service the beginning of the month of Elul. But for Ashkenazim, those from Western and Eastern Europe, it is customary to begin Slichot at 12 o'clock the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. Assuming, of course, that there are four days between that Saturday night and the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. So, in fact, this year, when Rosh Hashanah begins on Sunday night, the Slicho prayers are not offered the Saturday immediately before it, but a week earlier. I want to speak then, in the few minutes left to me this morning, about the Slicho prayers. The Moxor Vitri, which is a high holy day prayer, an 11th century work describing the yearly cycle of observances and prayers, tells us that it is a custom to begin on the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah to rise early to the synagogue before the sun rises and beg for mercy. In the words of one poetic text recited at this service, At the conclusion of the day of rest, we come to first meet you. Incline your ear from above, you who dwells amongst praise, to hear the song and the prayer. Slichot, prayers for forgiveness, are ancient prayers already mentioned in the Mishnah. 
They originated as prayers for fast days. The Mishnah describes public fast days and the order of prayer for such occasions as feasts of a series of exhortations that end with the words, He will answer us, recalling the times in Jewish history when God answered those who called upon them. Now, what are some of these prayers? One of the essential aspects of the uh, Slichot prayers are the 13 attributes of mercy that we find in Exodus 34. Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum Vachanum, Erech The Lord, the Lord, a God of compassion and gracious, slow to anger, rich in steadfast kindness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he does not remit all punishment. The name Lord, yud Hey vav Hey, which constitutes God's special name, was consistently understood by the rabbis as referring to the appearance of God in his attributes of mercy. Therefore, its repetition in this passage indicated to the ancient rabbis that God was merciful at all times. As the ancient words of the Talmud puts it, the Lord, Lord, referring to this phrase from Exodus, I am the same before one who sins and after one sins and repents. A God compassionate and gracious, says Rabbi Judah, covenant has been made concerning these 13 attributes. They will never be turned away empty-handed. The Slichot service emphasizes the 13 attributes. Over the centuries, special poems embellishing this passage were added to the Slichot. The exact poems to be recited may differ from place to place and country to gentry, but the basic elements of the Slichot service have remained the same throughout the Jewish world. The recitation of Slichot throughout Elul, the month preceding Rosh Hashanah, may stem from the fact that it was customary to fast six days before Rosh Hashanah. Since the Slichot originated as prayers for fast days, it followed naturally that they would be recited at this time. Originally, Slichot prayers, as I've already said, were recited early in the morning prior to dawn. There was a custom in Eastern Europe that the person in charge of prayers would make rounds of the village, knocking three times on each door and saying, Israel, holy people, awake, arouse yourself and rise for the service of the Creator. It later became common practice to hold the first Likot service, considered the most important, at a time most convenient for masses of people. Therefore, midnight was chosen. The effect of the Slichot service can be quite moving. The mere gathering of people at a time when they usually asleep is impressive. We sense in those who participate the extraordinary nature of the prayer and turn introspectively within ourselves. The prayers themselves are pleased for mercy. The melodies which change are sad and full of longing. Properly chanted, they form an oratorio expressing the despair that accompanies separation from God and the desire to change and repent. The self-depreciation contained in the word expresses the feeling of life's fleetingness and the burden of vanity that motivates us so much of what one does. 
The possibility of change and of better life is inherent in these prayers, and that is why they are the perfect preparation for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. For Jewish faith and facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you good morning and have a good day. You can hear a podcast recording of this show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom. Shalom.